I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Madeline Gerace and I'm the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is dying of whiteness and today our host will be Dr. Jonathan Metzel. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. My name is Jonathan Metzel. I am a um, physician and sociologist. I'm the director for the Center for Medicine, Health and Society and a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University. I also have a long career working in gun control, and so I'm the research director of something called the Safe Tennessee Project, which is a, a nonpartisan gun violence prevention organization, and as you just mentioned, I'm the author of a book called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Okay, so when you talk, this is Evan Lane, I'm the director of the Spectre Center uh, at Jefferson University, and very happy to be downtown at our downtown campus today. Um, when you're talking about the politics of resentment, uh, what are you talking about? I'm talking about a particular politics that are based in American history, certainly, but have been given more currency really since 2008, 2009, uh, after the election of President Obama. These are politics that are anti-government, anti-immigrant, pro-gun, um, and that basically took over the states and state houses of many um, Midwestern and Southern states. Um, and, and I think part of the issue is that there are many aspects of this kind of governance, uh, small government, uh, tax cuts, factors like that. But a, a powerful strain of it is basically restoring power to white American communities that uh, ostensibly by this narrative um, feel like they've been passed over or lost it. So in looking at your book, um, I think one of the things you took on where you were puzzled by is that a lot of these white middle-class voters in the areas that you're researching vote or support policies that actually work against their well-being. Uh, am I correct? That's exactly right. I mean, the two main points of the book are that the politics uh, that are supposed to make white America great again um, for working-class white people and other working-class people uh, end up making their lives harder, sicker, and literally shorter uh, I look in the book at policies uh, based in um, uh, rejecting health care reform, allowing the easy access of guns, massive tax cuts that upend infrastructure, roads, bridges, and schools. And what I find is that those policies themselves and the after effects as they play out are as dangerous for people in those states as are asbestos or secondhand smoke or riding in a car without a seatbelt. They literally become risk factors. And the irony, of course, is that they have horrible effects for many working class people, but white working class people, in some instances, see the greatest drop in life expectancy, and yet they continue to vote for politicians who enact these policies that are bad for them. I think, before we get into the why, which is the real interesting thing, we're setting up the foundation uh, for all of this, uh, the policies that they're supporting, in the end, don't support them. That's exactly right. I make that point that's the end of the introduction that basically they support them in some ways right in other words people feel like they're winning I talked to a lot of conservative voters and it was actually pretty powerful that they were playing the long game they said more important than my own health or my own well-being is this much longer story about getting conservative justices in and outlawing abortion and all these kind of factors so there was an eyes on the prize kind of narrative about so in that sense they did they did work for them and but but it was at a cost, right? They were 
laying their own bodies down on the tracks. Um, and it was, for me, a really interesting phenomenon, if I have one more minute Go to answer ahead. this, which is, you know, which, is, which is really that it made me think a lot about the framework of GOP politics. I think it's something that many liberals don't, don't appreciate, or I didn't before I wrote the book, and that's that there's this weird implicit contract between very wealthy white people and corporations and working class white people. It's a, it's a kind of mortal, mortal trade-off, which is that um, basically the entire GOP platform depends on the expendability of white working class bodies. In other words, if people who were Trump supporters and they said, I'm a Trump supporter, but I want health care and I want better schools, there's no way they could then pay for the tax cuts, right? And so the whole platform is, we're going to give you this ideological position, but your life is going to be shorter. And it was it was a very interesting trade-off because everybody knew that was happening. Okay. You said so many things I want to follow up on. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I, uh, I want to make this, um, at least the conclusion I've come to, I call it the Mike Vick syndrome. And I, the reason why I'm looking at it, because you said winning. Uh, we're in Philadelphia. Uh, we had a great quarterback, Donovan McNabb, Donovan McNabb got old, whatever it may be, we had no quarterback. We needed a quarterback to go to the Super Bowl. So we needed to win. So the, the person who was out there, the best as far as talent goes, was Michael Vick. Michael Vick who tortured and killed dogs. But people, a lot of them, embraced him as a member of our team because we wanted to win. So is it the winning of the social wars, whether it's abortion, gays, or whatever it may be, gay rights, is that one of the elements you looked at, the winning of, actually losing the social war, now desperate to win at any attempt to, to hire somebody like a Donald Trump slash Michael Vick? You don't care about who or what they are or what may happen. All you care about is winning. Yeah, there were not just mortal trade-offs. There were moral trade-offs that were made. And so I think that it's not like every person who I spoke with who's a Trump supporter loved all of his in you know Twitter or all the stuff he'd said about women, things like that, very far from that. They were appalled by it, but they were playing the long game, and they said, "If this guy's going to get us what we want," um, and it was it, I have to say impressive because they had this model of, I mean, I don't mean to be too crass, they had a model of power. They wanted power, they wanted to be in power, they wanted somebody to represent them in power, and so many of the people said, "If he's getting us what we want, that that." That's more important even than my own well-being in, in a particular way. And I guess I contrast that with myself, the way I think, the way many of my liberal friends think, where it's it's so much more about the process and it's more about the, um, you know, I just, I just, I could never see somebody like Donald Trump becoming the Democratic nominee. Um, so the question is, you know, what trade-offs are you willing to make <laughs> in a way? But looking at another side of that is, uh, you talk about status. Is it real status or illusory status um, that the white middle class person is is given, and the fear of losing that, as even though it may not even be real, is is motivating them to make these decisions that in the end actually hurt them. Well, I think it's both, right? I mean, I don't want to discount that it also is real, and the reason I say that is because of the racial politics of what the GOP is promising. In other words, there is a real material benefit to being white versus non-white in many of the communities that I spoke with in the South. And so in that regard, the wage is a real thing, right? You have you have oppression, but it's different, right, in a way. So on one hand, somebody who's gonna say I'm bolstering white America, that has a real that has a real consequence. But the other part of it is that, you know, as Du Bois well knew, 
the wage or whiteness is also a psychological wage that that you know that there's no real I mean there's no real thing called whiteness except for the systems we build around it you know we invented the category of whiteness in the 17th century in relation to theories of, of white supremacy and it's been kind of functioning that way on down and so it also is a psychology about a social hierarchy but again I, I would never discount that that social hierarchy doesn't have real consequences the irony here of course is that the real benefits are being garnered by people at the very top of the of the income scale right good you, you cited to the boys and I, I in the interview you also talked about him and a quote that he gave that he was amazed that after the Civil War that the poor whites and the poor blacks having a similar interest mm -hmm. didn't get together and rebel against those who are actually taking things from them, the, the privileged uh, few. And he, I want you to talk about that. Why didn't that occur? Well, I can say in my focus groups that for me it was the most powerful present day example because I've read Du Bois a zillion times. Mm -hmm. And so for, for Du Bois, right, it's like why 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 are we still holding on to this outdated notion of race? Like for Du Bois, it's like we just fought the Civil War, and like let's get it past it. Like you know we're we're an advanced country, but it was so profound this idea because it tied into not just race. It wasn't race; it's white supremacy, right? It's this idea that this category keeps the power structure in place, right? Um, but it was really trippy. I mean, running these focus groups, for example, and I'm running these focus groups with very very ill, poor white men. And I'll ask them, like, what's your biggest worry? And their biggest worry was, well, immigrants are coming to take our resources. Or um, they said welfare queens or having too many babies, all these kind of things. And I just really wanted to say, like, you know who the biggest driver of your material conditions are right now? It's actually people who are making more than $100 million a year because they're paying no tax. And that's why you have no infrastructure where you are. But nobody was ever looking up. It, the whole energy was looking down. And I think that's what white supremacy does. It forces white people to look down at people they feel are nipping at their heels and never look up to the real people who are really, really screwing you over from a material sense, but it, but they're invisible. They're white and they're invisible. Well, this whole thing, is it, does it just happen or is it part of a, a grander scheme? Um, I, I liken it to like people at a table and you have all the good stuff on one side, and you only have one person there, and the rest of the table like this is starving, and what we do is we throw a piece of scrap to them and let them fight it out among themselves. Well, they leave us, the privileged few, at the top. And it's a, isn't it a really amazing system how well it works? It's scary how efficient it is, and I'll say that in two ways. One is, it's in, if you're very wealthy, it's actually in your best interest to have people polarized beneath you. And so what I really came to, came to appreciate over this book, I mean, I talked to so many people who were staunch Republicans, NRA supporters at NRA meetings, who would also tell me, gosh, I wish we could have gun safes in our house because kids shouldn't be near guns. Or people who were staunch Republicans who also said, look, you know, my family supports um, 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 Medicaid expansion. Um, but every time that would happen, people would like shush them down and be like, you know, that's not our position. And so this idea of having either you're this or you're that, it never lets people make any kind of agreement in the middle, right? And so just this whole system of polarization, I really started thinking like, who 
who's polarizing us and, and who benefits? You know, Twitter makes a lot of money off polarizing us. Fox and CNN make a, a lot of money, certainly. It's good for their bottom line. Um, the NRA, of course. Um, but there are, factor, there are all these factors in society that tell us we're never going to be able to solve these problems. But, but polarization is a profound, profound factor. And I don't know. People ask me, like, what can we do about this problem? And one of the answers that I never would have given before is, let's not have a two-party system. Let's have a many-party system because just this polarization, it, it reflects things and it creates these extreme positions. And people who might be more in the center, um, they don't have any place to go. You're either this or you're that. You also said when you talk about solutions as far as empathy and getting to talk to people and bring people together. But when you look at what's being done by especially by particular people, by creating fear of these people, and especially when crime rates are so far down. I mean, if, any, if you look at any of the studies, this and it's going to look terrible on, on, the, on the SoundCloud, but it's a hand going down, okay? It's a real severe hand going down. So we really should be fear, fearing less, a lot less, but we're fearing so much more. Um, when I grew up, uh, crime rates were wild uh, in New York, with both New Yorkers, as we found out. And people didn't, I was still allowed to go outside because the fear element wasn't that much and I was able to go into New York on my own when I was 12 years old. Now forget it, that doesn't happen. Even though the crime rates are down, but the fear rates are way up. And who's, who is stemming those fears with the people who are fearful of people coming after them for what they have? I'll give you the NRA as a good example. Um, NRA, of course, trying to push guns in New York right now as we speak. but but. But part of the issue with the NRA is um, all this rhetoric. I talked about it a little bit in the talk I just mm -hmm. gave about how you need a gun to protect yourself against the gangbanger and the immigrant and the terrorist. But it turns out we have 40,000 gun deaths a year in this country. Um, Two-thirds or more are gun suicides. The biggest threat from guns is yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and having a gun present at a moment of despair, impulsive suicide. and so. There, and there's never talk about that. There's never talk about how can we store guns, how can we get them out of hands, people think. So this whole fomentation, number one, it's not talking about the real problem, which is the problems we're creating. And number two, it's so powerful. You know, this, this power of saying, you're being displaced. Somebody's out to take what's yours. Even, I mean, look at the economy under the Obama administration. It was very solid, doing incredibly well. But they scared people, and everybody thought they were doing worse off than they were. Okay. Um, can we open? I'd like to open up for some questions, especially some of our experts on what we've had. Anyone? Anyone have any questions before I go on? Because I have plenty more. <clears throat> yes, over there. So I have a question. The way you described in the beginning about um, people willing to sacrifice, you call it playing the long game. But that sounds a lot like altruism, right? And we and we champion, we ask for altruism, um, and we consider it a virtue. And so is that part of what? People are sort of able to frame this for themselves. It might not help me, but it'll help other people, or it'll help my children because these laws will be in place that I, you know, that I want something like that. Is that part of the deeper? I mean, think of throughout history of all the people who have died for a cause. You know, it's it's kamikaze in warfare. It's the martyr in, in religion. Um, it's always coded as a noble cause. And in this case, if you're dying for the unborn children, for example. Um, and that's the most important thing. So the, the framing of this is actually evil genius <laughs> or, or truth, right? Or truth. I mean, if people really do believe it. So if you really do believe 
that the unborn child is the most noble goal, you're going to make make them, um, you know, you're going to make all these um, trade-offs for that and other ideologies as well. So most of the people I spoke with weren't saying I'm dying of whiteness. Um, you know, some people did, uh, to be honest. Some people did, but most of the people were like, "No, I'm doing what I believe, and I'm and I'm on this side of right." And so, for them, there were all of these bigger goals, and 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 I think you know, it would be interesting to, for them to ask to ask them about altruism. But I would bet that they would probably agree with that. I mean, if you really, really believed that the biggest problem right now is abortion and unborn children being murdered, if you really believe that. Um, you're dying for a noble cause by giving up your own everything to elect a guy who's going to go in and make abortion illegal. If you really think that the Second Amendment is the most important thing, it's a God-given right, which actually people on our own Supreme Court now believe that. Um, if you think Second Amendment is a God-given right, now for me, I'm like, I feel like you're being led down the path by a corporate position, but they, if you feel like it's a God-given right, I mean, there are people on the Supreme Court now who feel that the Second Amendment is as enshrined as, as the freedom of speech in our country, right? And so if you really believe that, then you're doing something that's for a much bigger, a much bigger cause, as opposed to, I'm just electing a guy <coughs> who's not giving me health care. Could you yes. talk about how you work with data in the book? I mean, you came to some really, <coughs> you quantified things in ways that led to very dramatic and for instance, I'm just drawing from memory, so I might not be remembering this correctly, but like 7,000 years of white life due to high school dropouts in Kansas over the last X number of years. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at some of those figures? Sure. The, so for, I'm going to be quiet while the noise goes by really quick. Uh, you have the mic. Thanks. Okay. So the question was how I, how I work with data, and there are a couple of things. So I'm trained in, in well, 17 different ways, uh, but, uh, but, but I, I think that the when you tell a story like this about how politics leads to changes in mor morbidity and mortality, for me that's a nuanced story. And ultimately at the core there are human stories. I try to privilege those. But I think it's also too easy to discount a narrative like this if it's just based in anecdotes or case studies. And so what I did is try to layer it, and every section is the same. I start with the political story, then I tell the human story, then I go back in time and tell the historical story, and then the kicker of every section is the data story. And the data was a little bit different. Um, for healthcare, it's pretty easy to find healthcare data. There's so much data on the Affordable Care Act. So I just went to some of the main databases about um, comparing Kentucky versus Tennessee, one state that had the Affordable Care Act, the other that blocked it. And it was not hard to track how much people were paying for their medications, how many people were going bankrupt medically, what was happening to doctor's visits. The, the, the data was incredibly easy to get, and I, I'm very transparent, hopefully, in the book, because I invite people to go do their own analysis. Um, but, but can I ask you just yeah. on that? When, when they're faced with these people not getting the medications, not getting health care in the states that didn't like to opt in, do they understand yeah. that it's a result of um, oh, not yeah. accepting, or mm -hmm. do they blame it on something else? Well, they blame it on something else, but they all do so to understand it. And, and I'll tell you the perfect example of that. In my data, I compared Tennessee, which had worsening health outcomes, more medical bankruptcies. I compared that with Kentucky. Kentucky adopted, expanded. Many more people got health insurance. I mean, many more people got health insurance. 
hardly any bankruptcies. People paid less for their prescriptions. Life expectancy started to grow. And five years after adopting it, they voted out the guy who brought it to them. And the new guy who came in, the next governor of Kentucky, his platform was get the government out of my health care. So Kentucky, after themselves realizing the benefit of Affordable Care Act, when somebody came on this kind of resentment backlash politics, they voted in the guy who was going to take away take away their own health care. So if anybody knew the benefit, it was going to be the people who had it, and they voted in a guy who was going to come take it away. Um, I will say the other part of the data is gun data. Very, very hard to get, right? We've had this thing called the Dickey Amendment for many years, um, which blocks federal research on guns. Um, so there are very few gun databases, and so that to yeah, I don't want you to just go over that, because yeah. people are going to be listening. You said there are 40,000 people a year die of gun violence. More now, yeah. More now, okay. Um, that's an incredible number. And yet, we're not allowed to do research? Well, it's changing or... a little bit now, but basically since the 90s, um, there's been a rider to the congressional budget that basically the language was no money shall go toward the study of um, gun control, but it's very disingenuous because what it did it, it's, is it scared anybody out of giving any grants. So. The CDC, the NIH, the NIMH. Now, the tide might be turning a little bit now because of private foundations that are funding this. Um, but I will say that we've got a 30-year gap in our knowledge, um, on one hand, about the, about gun death. So there aren't the kind of federal databases that you would turn to to study other kinds of gun death. So partially, there was no data. And for the book, what we ended up doing was looking at databases that used coroner's reports, because when somebody dies of gun suicide, it's got to be listed on the coroner report. Um, but it, it's very, very shaky and difficult data. And now, again, that might be changing, but there's more research, but I don't know about this database question. I think that that's, um, I think that's part of the problem. Um, so certainly gun data is very political, very hard to get, but I mean, I, I feel very confident. And again, I was very, very transparent in the book. I invite people to do the same study. I tell them step by step what I did. Um, because I, because I want these findings to be reproducible. Uh, any further questions before I start asking some more? Okay. Um, there's one yeah, go ahead. Jonathan, one of the kind of more compelling moments in the book, apart from the support group in Cape Girardeau, which was a multitude of people, you should read it for yourself. And oh my God. Kind of break, <laughs> break down, is when Trevor, the man from Tennessee who's dying of liver disease, Okay, you do this brief analysis trying to make sense of Trevor, and you, and you kind of conclude it's not mostly about his ideas, his own thoughts and ideas, but rather it's profoundly his politics. And, kind of, and I think that there's a very powerful insight into that. You hinted at it earlier, is that kind of people don't easily give up on deeply held convictions, and trying to win the argument has almost no value. Somewhat interesting, another you know, strength of the book is the power of the stories perhaps to achieve things that other kinds of argumentation would not have much of a chance at all. That people read a story, in some way people read a novel, and are in some ways touched by it in unexpected ways. That, and it's a kind of, it has a great virtue in some cases of being a silent transformation. You're doing it as the reader, engaging with the text. And I think reading stories has something of that same potential. And sharing stories, of Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, the question was about the stories. I mean, I tried to do them justice because I can tell you there's nothing more powerful than what I did in the gun chapter, which is sit in the room with people who have lost children or partners or parents to gun suicide and try to make sense of it. It never makes sense. And so the trauma, the trauma in that room was 
50 million times more than what I say, but I tried to at least capture some, some of the flavor of that because I felt it important to do justice. And I was honored that people would let me into those rooms um, and, and talk to me about it. Um, like similarly, talking to, talking to somebody who's himself dying and spouting this ideology that I don't agree with, but the man is also dying. Like there are many other things going on at that time. He's struggling for breath. He's carrying an oxygen mask. He's in pain. Um, and so my identity to that was so different than I bet you know if I met him on Twitter, um, we would have we would have just had a fight like you're this, you're that, whatever. But when you're meeting people in the real world, it's so it's so different. So I tried to convey the complexity of of, of, of that because. I did feel like really that was where that was where I learned I learned so much uh, for myself and I think your point also about identity is so is so spot on. I really it was important for me to say that these people were dying of ideology but also of policies. There were policies that put guns in people's rooms in Missouri. There were policies that didn't allow healthcare and part of it is because I think policies are more mutable than our identities but also because identities are so fixed that it's it's I don't know. It feels impossible. You know, it's impossible to know somebody's identity or to change somebody's identity. But we can't change policy. But, but how much of these beliefs is based upon policy, and how much is it based upon team? Right. Whether it's the white team or the black team, right? Were you able to? Well, I mean, I, I guess the point is that the policies reflect the identities for sure. I mean, people are gravitating, but of course, those are also the, manip the manipulations that are that are being done. I feel like. The Republicans have figured this out much better than the <laughs> Democrats, um, but it's it's kind of like how can you link policy changes to deep ideological and philosophical um, fissures, biases, stereotypes, things like that. And so, um, you know, I don't know. The the Democrats, do the Democrats want to go there? You know, I mean, I don't know. I kept thinking like a good slogan would be like, "Trump's killing you," or "Rich people are." using you, something like that, like something that had emotional resonance. It's not going to be the same because it doesn't tie into all these histories. But um, I don't know, just seeing seeing people try to make arguments for the Affordable Care Act that were based on facts and not on these deep fissures, it, it felt like, um, uh, it felt, I could see why the Affordable Care Act wasn't very popular. <laughs> just going to the panel, people around here, how do you think the American public would react to that kind of blunt type of advertisement. The, these policies are killing you. Uh, they are bamboozling you. They're, they're uh, manipulating you. Would it be effective or would they not listen? So I'm, I know all of us once in a while go into that horrible Twitter sphere. Yeah. I feel like people who are kind of in the middle, who don't really, not sure what side to take, it might affect them in a positive light. They might see it like, oh, but I feel like people who are so deeply embedded with the vote for Trump and they don't really care what he says, I feel like they might react really negatively to it and it might make them hold on to their ideas even more. What else? Who else? Yeah. Go ahead. Are you oh, right exactly. there? I'm, right there. <laughs> I, I'm Linda. I'm here at uh, Jeff Burnett's school. But thinking about, is this is literally killing us. There was an op-ed in the New York Times last spring about racism is killing us. And more than 10 years ago, David Satcher, the uh, Surgeon General, wrote this landmark piece on what is the cost of lives um, from health disparities in this country, primarily driven by race. 84,000 African Americans each year, ten, more than 10 years ago, he cited were dying because of unequal health policies. So the rhetoric is there. I mean, it's obviously being used in more of these elite spheres, the New York Times or 
um, reports from the Surgeon General, but I don't see how it's driving policy successfully in the way that we would want it to mobilize, especially in the realm of healthcare. So you can use that, but I think one of the other issues we have to address is the apathy of the voting electorate and how that is really shaping the policy that we have in place right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, to, to um, uh, additionally, in this, in, this, in this challenge there, the past decade has faced has faced such a erosion in faith in public institutions there, where where the where the us versus them mentality has really not not only transferred to like my team wants to benefit me, but everyone else who's not on my team is not trustworthy and not a reputable source. So then to get back to your original question of um, would those slogans work, it really it, it really matters would those slogans even be heard if they're coming from sources or, or or coming from people that that are not even deemed trustworthy or just liars or crazy liberals or mm -hmm. just crazy people on the other side who have been the reason why you're in these troubles. Good point. Yeah. Um, again, we might hear the message and we might even think about it, but the grassroots people sometimes they are not even aware that these messages are out. So we could have these and word them in a particular way, but is it gonna get to the people who really need it? And that's the question because when you talk to friends who are not, you know, following politics, they're like, "Oh, okay, I've never heard about this, and I don't know that this is going on." So we are here. We're saying we having a discussion about this, but the people who really need it, they might not even be aware of it. They're not hearing it, and that's a problem. Yes. I still hear like in that comment. I still hear like an us versus them. Like we are, we're we're smarter than they are. We might be more enlightened or something like that. And. And that bothers me. Maybe, maybe that's not, and that's not exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because it's not that I'm saying I'm enlightened. I'm just saying that we do have people who are just not aware. And it might sound like that's what we're saying, but some people are just not. Maybe as he yeah. said, the other side is saying something, and I don't want to hear it. Or they, they just don't want to hear it because guess what? We're, we're trying to feed the kids and we're trying to pay the rent and we're trying to keep our heads up, you know, we're trying to keep afloat. I don't want to know what's going on. I'm here and doing what I'm doing. So that might be the problem. The, the vehicle to get that message out there, we might have to change that. That's a, good, that's a very good point. I want you to comment on this back on it. Because we are working as a society harder than we've ever worked. Uh, more and more hours. Uh, just to, because pr the... Uh, Salaries have not gone up right. with inflation. Um, so people are struggling. Most people in America are struggling. I think I read that most Americans don't even have $500 in their bank account. Mm -hmm. And we, we experienced that during the uh, shutdown where people who have good jobs um, couldn't pay rent. It was a disaster. So is it part of this great plan of the elite that not to increase our wages and to keep our wages down and to keep our taxes higher where Amazon doesn't pay any because, as you said, we're so busy just trying to pay the rent, pay the medical bills, that who has time to do the research in order to find out what's going on? I understand what you have to say and what you have to say on that. Go ahead, you first. Oh, sure. Dr. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I agree with all of these points. And I, I do think it's, just, I mean, that's why we have 35,000 Democratic potential candidates for president right now, <laughs> is because we're trying to figure out like what what is the message right I know a message that resonates to me but all of a sudden we're trying to think what's going to work on other people and we're really struggling with that like do we go down the rabbit hole and are we 
creeps? Um, or are we going to make a, a message that's based in economics? Are we going to make it a message there? But I do think we're trying to figure this out. Like, what's the, what's the way to crack this thing that we're all trying to figure out? But I do think part of the issue, um, you know, and I, I completely agree about this, um, about race being a zero-sum game, I think is, is a very, it's a very white way of thinking about race, that there are winners and losers. Um, because it's always us versus them. It's never like the African-American men in my focus groups, here, I was talking about said about how you know health insurance works when everybody buys into it. Um, health insurance works when every, you know there's some sick people, there's some not sick people, and we all rise up. But that takes un understanding a safety net with many strands and many shards. And 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 when you think about races, one person wins, one person loses. The minute you have that as your framework, they're going to be winners and losers, and you and you want to win. So partially, this is a framework kind of question. Um, the other point that I think is important about the GOP is that they've been so successful at making, and I said this before, particular policies into racial identities. In other words, to be pro-gun is not just to be for gun policy. You know, I'm, I'm pro-gun, but I'm for background check. That's what I would say. Um, but they would say, I'm pro-gun because it's my identity. I'm pro-gun because I'm pro-white and I'm pro-Republican and stuff like that. So they're, and same thing. You know, to be white and Republican is to be anti-Obamacare. So they've really connected identity with policy in a way. And I, I don't know. It's hard to think about. I mean, I personally feel like the Democrats win when they have the most charismatic candidate. Um, you know, and I think history, recent history kind of bears that out. Um, but I think if it's a dogfight about policy, one person's going to be arguing policy, the other person's going to be arguing identity. And that was what happened last time, of course. Calling people basket of deplorables didn't help either. Uh, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> didn't help. Um, Go ahead. Oh, I'm Christina. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree that I think the source of the message matters so much, like you were saying, in terms of models of whiteness. So, maybe if it came out of the mouth of a white veteran politician or someone who's kind of at the status, or you know, is that Beto O'Rourke? Is he a veteran? But look at how easy, like, look at Trump, how easily he turns out. Like, oh, well. Jeff, Sessions, <laughs> Jeff Sessions is great, and then he's terrible. Like, everybody, um, even, like, military veterans, like, um, what's his name? You know, like, nice. all the, Mattis. Mattis is great, and then he's terrible. So turning that narrative, it's very easy for him to turn that narrative on a white man, I personally feel. Uh, it's harder for him to turn it on other people, but I do think that it's hard, that it's very easy for him to create insider outsider. I mean, Mattis is a perfect example, like a decorated Marine military vet who all of a sudden, all these Trump supporters are calling like all these horrible names to and stuff like that, so. But he couldn't speak out because he was within this administration. But I'm saying like from the other side, it would be more difficult to kind of shoot down that model of whiteness, yeah. the real patriot, as opposed to Trump, who's, you know, <laughs> yeah. didn't. Go ahead. Yeah, someone has home, so, um, um, Sometimes the government they is in the land of countries, so um, it takes time to solve the problem and the source. And it goes back to the question of trusting government. Maybe we got a couple more, and we'll wish these all together. I had a comment. Um, 
I thought it was interesting what you were saying about how um, conservatives have sort of a married identity with policy. And I, I would say that, like, on the flip side, that would be kind of like what they say that folks on the other side of the spectrum are doing, right? Like, how many times do folks that are on the progressive or liberal side get accused of identity politics? I mean, I would say that's, and I would say that, you know, equally so, sort of the trick of conservative ideology is to remove identity politics in a lot of senses and say, like, this is something that is, you know, like, you kind of think about how the antidote or the their so-called antidote to, you know, Black Lives Matter is all lives matter, you know, is to actually, like, remove the identity <laughs> to the degree to which that plays, like, a role in the effectiveness. You know, I don't, I guess it was just kind of a thought in which to reflect that back in the other direction. Just think about what's happening to the Democrats right now. It, um, we're very slowly starting to realize that what somebody, something, if somebody touched somebody's hair 30 years ago, um, it's less important than if they can win the election. In other words, people are saying, what, what calculus am I going to have to make um, in order to find somebody who's winnable? And I'm willing to forgive some things that maybe last year I wasn't willing to forgive. Now, imagine that in 200 years. That's where the Republicans are now. Um, so we're really behind that curve in a certain kind of way. But and, and again, that's a question. Like, what does that do to your moral fiber as a country, as a society? But I would. Uh, but it, it's interesting to see Democrats start to think about this question about who can win the election in a way. And on the flip side, as I was saying in the in the talk, the other flip side of it is this litmus test kind of thing, which is, will you say a particular position? Will you do this? That kind of thing. So I th I think th th these are all up for grabs right now. I'm not taking a, so a stance aside one 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 side or another. But I would I would say that you know it, it's a question about would you rather be right or president right? <laughs> in a certain kind of way right now. Just let's talk about some solutions. Um, and uh, oh, we have a question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. yeah, sorry. Uh, John from the College of Nursing here at Jefferson. Um, I guess just two quick, hopefully quick things. I'm curious, uh, Dr. Metzl, in your talk, and I've talked about the need right now to really talk about whiteness for white folks to talk about whiteness. I'm curious, kind of, in the academic setting particular kind of where you see that conversation happening and going right now and particularly within health professional programs right how we're talking about not just race but explicitly about whiteness and I guess the the other thing I'm curious to maybe comment on is talking about how crisis is used kind of politically within politics and the example I'll kind of throw out is the opiate crisis which by all means is something that absolutely we need to devote attention to, but maybe discuss kind of maybe how it's used by GOP or Trumpian politics in a racial way. Awesome questions. Everybody, all, all, all awesome questions. Um, in terms of the language of whiteness, um, I was telling my, uh, my friend Christina here that I have until tonight to write a 750-word op-ed uh, about um, what it means to be white in Trump's America. So any help, any, any really appreciated <laughs> help, that people have. Um, and so, you know, what I'm thinking about in terms of that are a couple of things. Obviously, I just wrote a book about whiteness. So you think I could whip out seven or eight words. But mm -hmm. it turns out it's easier to diagnose the problem than it is to say what to do about it. And I'm, I'm struggling with that. Um, you know, I'm, we're doing this anti-racist book fair next week in Tennessee, if any, in uh, D.C., if anybody's in Washington. And we're doing a whole panel on um, white anti uh, white anti-racism which should be amazing and for people who are following me on Twitter we're gonna I'm gonna tweet about it but in the meantime I gotta write this friggin abstract uh, level <laughs> thing uh, and so I would say I would say a couple of things about that um, number one is that um, 
you know, it's it's very often the case that people say whiteness is invisible, that it's, you know, this silent norm, the invisible norm, and that works, right? That's how white supremacy works, is it's not, it's not a group under surveillance, it's not a topic under surveillance. And that's great until there are times where you really need to talk about whiteness, right? All of a sudden, somebody's co-opting the whiteness narrative and saying that what white means to be white in America is, um, is to screw over people in need and not provide safe haven and all of a sudden. And you really need to combat that with another narrative of whiteness. But if you don't have another narrative of whiteness, um, you know, then you don't know how to respond to that in a way. It becomes all these proxy conversations about a bunch of other things. And so you can think where we don't have narratives of whiteness. I mean, it really is true, as I was saying in the thing, like when I took cultural competency in medical school, there was nothing about how do you talk about, like how do you talk to white patients or something like that. Like nobody, nobody told us that. Um, diversity training, things like that. Now, now, I, now again, I realize why that's the case, right? Because that puts everybody on level playing field and they're not. But the flip side is when you really need to have a language about whiteness, you don't have it. So part of the flip side of being the invisible norm um, is not having a rhetoric at this particular moment to talk back and say, you're stealing whiteness, but really what whiteness means is it's based in Quakerism and Christianity and, and generosity and blah, blah, blah. And it's based in communities. It's based in people fighting for desegregation and people fighting for um, civil rights. There are all these other ways to be white, but because it's invisible, uh, we can't do that. I want to get onto the crisis point, but can I ask our witness expert how that how that sounds? Well, two stories, Jonathan, about your op-ed, okay? And, yeah. and both of them are different cases of history. First is the Free State of Jones. I don't know if people saw the movie that was yeah. released a few years ago, where there were folks in the Deep South, okay, who refused to join, who deserted the Confederate Army and made common cause with, with slaves and freed slaves. Uh, that's one story. And then the other, of course, is the story of, of John Brown and the abolitionists, okay, who were prepared Talk about risking your life, okay, to do that, okay? And that the notion that John's that John Brown enunciated about remember those that are in bonds as if you were in bonds yourself, okay, that kind of notion of human solidarity could in some ways provide a reference point for thinking about other ways of acting around this. Uh, okay. so, Thank you. His, I think my one last thing is I think Jonathan makes I, I'm mostly familiar with, familiar with the gun chapter. Ray makes a remarkable kind of contribution to the history of gun ownership around the race question, okay? That's really quite fascinating. And there's a surprise, it seems to me, to people who already know a lot about that stuff, they are surprised by some of that. So kind of history, I think, is a powerful weapon. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, thank you all. I'm going to footnote everybody in this room when I do that. Um, now, this thing of crisis, you know, the irony about crisis is... Um, you would think that would be the place where we figure all this stuff out, but in fact, moments of crisis are when people become more polarized. I give you a lot of examples. Mass shootings. You know, you would think when kids are going to get shot in a school or people are going to get shot in a movie theater, people would be like, enough is enough. Let's come to some kind of agreement. It turns out after mass shootings, people become more pro or anti-gun. People actually become much more polarized after mass shootings. People who are pro-gun, like that's when gun sales are the best. You know, people run out and buy all these weapons, they buy all this ammunition. Um, and you can go down the line. I mean, the people who I spoke with, this was my assumption, people who were really medically sick were gonna be were gonna be like, to hell with it, I want healthcare. You know, but instead they were more ideological in these crisis moments. And so part of the issue, I mean, I know for guns for me, what I'm arguing now is we need to have these gun debates not after mass shootings when, people, when everything's so raw, um, but actually at non-mass shooting times. But it turns out a lot of the gun policy we set is set right after mass shootings, which to me is a mistake. Um, but it, it's what we got, right? It's all we have. But it's funny that crisis moments make people more polarized, not less.
We only have about 10 minutes left, so I want to go into the, more of the solutions-oriented sure. thing, um, unless we have another question. Is One more. Question? Is this? Well, I mean, we were talking about um, people, particularly the, the very ill men in your focus groups, um, and we were, you were also saying that they are living in publicly subsidized housing. And I feel as though, yes, there's an anti-government mantra and get government out of my health care and get government out. But there's also, I don't want to call it hypocrisy, because I feel like it is, but that makes me feel um, like I have no empathy, right? I just feel like um, I'm going to have empathy for these people, but they do sound like hypocrites. But I think it's much deeper than hypocrisy or different from hypocrisy. There are certain, it's not really about government. It really is about race. I mean, that's really what I feel like it boils down to. There is invisible public support and government intervention. What about all the people whose second homes were destroyed at the shore by these various hurricanes? They want the federal government to pay out and get their homes fixed. That is their right. That is the job of the federal government. Many of the same people will be going on and on about welfare queens and and having babies. So there's certain kinds of government things. Other government things are perfectly okay. So I think we have to kind of avoid a narrative of, I mean, the whole anti-government and get the government out of my fill in the blank is itself a false narrative, I think, when we're trying to interpret some of these behaviors and beliefs. I mean, everything for me is about race, right? <laughs> But, but if you're looking for consistency, there's not a shred of consistency in anything that I study, really, because it, everything was contextual. Everything was relational. You know, on one hand, the federal government was, you know, when state governments were racist and the KKK was in states, the federal government came in and mandated desegregation, right? The federal government was a savior in, in a racial justice sense. Mm -hmm. And that's the same federal government that, I don't know if people saw the press conference this morning, that... Um, is very different right now, <laughs> in a way, um, and so um, and so it really it reflects these bigger ideologies, and everybody's position flips all the time. But there's also I don't know I don't think hypocrisy is the right word, but I mean no I don't either. <laughs> but it, it was more just like these blind spots people had, you know, people who were themselves on welfare, living in federally funded housing, were telling me about how everybody else was using up the resources, and I, maybe there was a real fear for them. Maybe there's a real fear for them that there were only so many resources and they were living by a threat. Yeah, maybe. Because they feel entitled to that because of their privilege. That, and that's and the, vulnerable. They're titled and vulnerable. I know I'm trying to get to solutions. I would Please, love to. Solutions. So, uh, okay. Um, I know you talked about telling stories and that type of thing. Um, and I, I want to just go off with the gentleman, who, uh, the publisher who spoke previously. If we still look at it like you're look, you, you propose it, whiteness is this, blackness is this, doesn't that still feed into that there's a two-team type of thing? Unfortunately, right now we're living in a moment where it really matters who wins elections. And so, I mean, I can give you philosophical answers and things like that, but I think we've seen in the last two years it matters who wins an election. And, and so part of the issue is what are the things about winning the election versus things that are tied to what you do once you're in power in government? Right? And so part of the issue, and I'll tell you that talking to a lot of conservative voters, I really gain, like for them, it's all about winning the election and changing the judiciary. And then I started thinking, how many things that I care about are linked to the judiciary? You know, 
everything, <laughs> you know, abortion, gun rights, uh, healthcare, all these things. So part of this is if you're if you're going to take a lesson, it's for them. It's everything is about winning the election. And there was a whole method about, you know, start at the school board, start at the thing, do the grassroots, all the thing. And Democrats are just waking up to that, that it really matters who wins elections. So part of this is not just about deconstructing binaries. It's about, it's, it's a really about elections and judiciary. And that being said, the point I just made in the talk is I also don't, I think we have to disavow ourselves of this idea that Trump voters are going to wake up when they see how bad these policies are. That's, not, that's what everybody thought. Hmm. Except me and some other people, uh, and I, when people will say that, and I'd be like, "No, actually, back to the crisis point. The worse it gets, the more pro-Trump they're going to be." And so, you have to offer other concrete alternatives, and also you have to respect them. That until they start asking for more, <laughs> this is not going to change, right? Until conservatives themselves, uh, who are working class and white, and say, "I'm I'm white and I'm conservative, but I want better health care," until that happens. There's not going to be a partner on the other side for these particular issues. Yes, yes. Just to put one other topic on the table. My original area of uh, specialty as an academic was First Amendment law. Uh, with some exceptions, such as fraud and uh, slander, lying speech has the same constitutional protection as truthful speech, particularly when you're talking about matters of public concern. So I think one piece of this discussion is that we're really not talking about interpretations of facts or uh, who puts forth the most persuasive facts. We're, we're in a culture where what is said does not have to bear any relationship to the truth whatsoever, which really throws a wild card into the whole game. And, and really part of what's powerful about hopefully the story I'm telling is it's not just lying to other people. That's how people think about false narrative. People are lying to themselves, right? You know, they're saying I'm doing great when I'm when they're not and stuff like that. So part of the lying is not just manipulating somebody else. You know, this truth narrative is actually very, very um, self-damaging as well. Uh, any further questions before we do a wrap-up for this? Okay, so I'll give you final statements. Well, just thank you. I mean, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I mean, it's really great to, you know, anybody can give a, can give a talk. Uh, but, uh, but, but to actually engage with people about this work and the bigger issues that we all care about really is a, is a great honor for me. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.